I resolve to beat the bulge. I resolve to tame the tongue. I resolve to quit smoking. I resolve to try something new. These were some of the top resolutions for the new year that came up on a Google search. In less than 24 hours, we are going to enter into a brand new year. And millions of people around the world are making resolutions for this new year. Now, the reason why so many people make so many resolutions is because it gives them something to look forward to. It's interesting to see people's resolutions because it tells you exactly what is it that they are looking forward to. What is it that they are longing for in the new year? Well, I don't know if you make resolutions, but I wonder what is it that you are looking forward to with this coming new year? Now, we have been in the book of Mark for several weeks now. And today we are going to continue to look at the controversial series of Jesus. You see, Jesus' arrival in Galilee was a historic moment because it marked the breaking in of the kingdom of God for the very first time in this world. Jesus is ushering in his kingdom. He is inaugurating his rule in the world. And the people, they have been waiting for years for this. But after Jesus is coming, now they get to see it firsthand. However, there were also some other people around Jesus at that time in Galilee. The top religious figures of the day, the Pharisees, they were not really pleased with Jesus' arrival. They were the ones who were in positions of authority. And Jesus' words and his actions confronted them and confronted their authority. And so the two authorities clashed. Conflicts ensued. Today, we are going to look at three more conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, what is important to note is that in the midst of these conflicts, even the ones that we've been looking before, Jesus reveals characteristics of his rule. So today we are going to see three characteristics of Jesus' rule that the Pharisees were opposed to. His rule is marked by joy. His rule is marked by rest. And his rule is marked by life. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does the wine will burst the skin, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine 
into new wineskins. So, the question in this section has to do with fasting. It seems that only Jesus' disciples were the ones who were not fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. Even the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. Only Jesus' disciples were not fasting. So some people go to Jesus and they ask him, what is the reason for it? Now regarding fasting, in the Old Testament, there was really only one day in the whole year that God had commanded his people to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. However, the Pharisees commanded their people to fast up to two times weekly. It was just according to their traditions, nothing commanded by God. Now, even though there was just one day of a year that they were supposed to fast, we see there are several examples and instances where people are fasting in the Bible. So, for example, in the book of Jonah, the Ninevites fasted. After Jonah preached to them God's message of judgment against them, Moses fasted for his people. All these examples of fasting are an expression of sorrow over their sin and a deep longing for salvation from God. In other words, people were fasting in the Old Testament out of an anticipation of the coming Messiah. It was for the Messiah that they were fasting. Now Jesus tells these people why his disciples were fasting. Verse 19, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that there is a wedding that is taking place. And his disciples happen to be the guests at a wedding. Now, it would be unthinkable for the guests of a wedding to fast. Can you imagine? Imagine if there was a wedding that was happening here. What would it look like if we came in and saw all the guests of this wedding mourn? We'd think there is something wrong with it. It's something that you expect to see at a funeral, not at a wedding. Weddings are times of cheer. It's a time of laughter. It's a time of feasting and lots and lots of rejoicing. It was a time of joy. So Jesus is painting this picture to talk to these people about what his presence among his people is like. His presence among his people is characterized by a wedding celebration. Also, do you notice that Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom? Now, with that, he's making an astounding claim. But if we have to fully, truly appreciate what he is saying, we have to go back to the Old Testament and look at the images of wedding and the bridegroom in the Old Testament. Written hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival in Galilee, God had promised that one day God would be the bridegroom to his people. God was going to be the husband to his people. So look with me at Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, if you have your Bibles. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. God is saying that 
his people will call him their husband. Later, in the same chapter, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. There is another place. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. And this has a lot to do with what Jesus is saying. God says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. You see what these promises were referring to? These promises were about God saying that he was going to be the bridegroom to his people. So by Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom, he is revealing an important aspect of his identity. In other words, what Jesus is very plainly, clearly saying is that he is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. The King of the world. This is who they have been fasting for. So with his presence here on earth, there is no point to fast anymore. There should only be rejoicing because God was in their midst. Imagine a bride waiting for her bridegroom for many years, in fact thousands of years, not knowing when he's going to come, only having some promises to hold on to. What will it be? When he finally arrives, what will that day be like? There will be endless joy. That is what Jesus' coming represents. Endless joy. Now, Jesus' coming 2,000 years ago marked the coming of the kingdom of God in the world. However, Jesus also promised a time in the future when he will return in full glory and then there will be an end to all mourning for his people. Because on that day, he promises that his people will enter into eternal joy in his presence and there will be no end. That day will be the consummation between, of the wedding between God and his people, where this wedding image that Jesus is referring to will be fully realized for all of the world to see. But only, only those who have submitted to this Jesus in faith are going to be part of his kingdom, are going to be in his presence forever. Friends, some of you might be here visiting. And some of you might be here investigating Christianity. We just want to say we love that you are here. We are glad that you can come and hear about what Jesus' coming into the world means for the world. Jesus has come to forgive us of our sin against God. He has come to accept us to be in the presence of God forever. But what he asks from us is that we turn from our sin. That is what repentance means, to turn from our sin. 
and to put our faith in Jesus alone. Then he promises a life in eternity with God where there will be no end to joy. And he offers this free gift to anyone, irrespective of our background or anything else. He offers this free to anyone who would put their faith in him. Friends, he has the power to do it. And he can do it for you too. Now for those of us who are Christians, we wait today for the return of Christ. When we will be in his presence and will be with him forever. Friends, there is a deep longing, a deep ache in our hearts to be with Jesus. We want to experience this eternity of joy in his presence. We can't wait for it. But now, this time that we wait, it's really a good discipline to fast. Jesus himself points to a time when his disciples should fast. Verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. This time that we are living in right now is the time that Jesus was talking about. It is the time after his death and resurrection till his return again. During this time, his disciples will fast. The purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is so that we can experience a deep longing to want to be in the presence of this king. That is what fasting is for. It is not like the Pharisees who also fasted. But they fasted only to look pious. Only so that they could merit God's acceptance by their fasting. No. The root of Christian fasting, says John Piper, is a hunger of homesickness for God. As Christians, we should be homesick for heaven as we live in this world that is filled with sin and pain and sorrow, we should be longing for our home. You know why fasting is good? Because fasting forces us to ask the question, do I long to be in the presence of God? Or am I content with the life I now live? If you want to read more about this topic on fasting, I highly recommend reading Hunger for God by John Piper. Now let me give you two reasons why it is a good idea for Christians to fast. One, fasting exposes the desires that compete with our desire to be with God. It shows us what are the real treasures in our lives. It shows us what is really valuable to us. Second, Fasting creates a deep desire to be with Christ above everything else. Friends, the Pharisees fasted. In their fasting, they were blindly following rules with no meaning. They couldn't see the Messiah who was standing right in front of them. That is who they were fasting for. Jesus is challenging them in this passage. He uses the parable of the new and the old 
And basically what he's saying is that his kingdom and the Pharisees' rule are not compatible together. In fact, he says that if his authority, his new authority, is mixed with Pharisees' traditions, which represents the old, if they are mixed, if the new and the old are mixed, then it's going to be destructive. It's going to burst. Jesus was making a commentary on the conflicts going on between him and the Pharisees. And he was also making a prophecy of what was going to come. Friends, Jesus offers joy in his presence forever. Second, Jesus offers rest. Let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is another instance where the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and his authority. The issue here has to do with the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples are picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, what the disciples were doing was they were breaking the law of the Sabbath. Verse 24, the Pharisees said to them, said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now the disciples might have been picking grain, um, maybe because they were hungry. But my question is, what are the Pharisees doing in the grain field on a Sabbath? They probably were there to catch Jesus and his disciples break the Sabbath. The Sabbath was commanded by God to be a day of rest. That's what the Old Testament says. No one was allowed to work. The Pharisees observed this rule very strictly. They were so careful that what they did was they added layers upon layers of rule to the law that God had provided so that they could keep anyone from breaking it. But they were only focused on the outward actions. The Pharisees decided what actions would constitute work and would break the Sabbath. So they came up with 39 rules about work to protect themselves from breaking the Sabbath. And they were very picky about it. So for example, carrying anything in the public was work on the Sabbath, whereas carrying anything in private was allowed. And there were certain things that were constituted as burden that could not be carried at all on the Sabbath. For example, pieces of paper, horse's hair, wax, and anything as heavy as a dried fig was not allowed to be carried. So in the case of the disciples, they were breaking many of these Pharisees' rules by picking heads of grain. And that's what the Pharisees caught them for. So Jesus asks them, verse 25, Have you never read 
what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting an incident from 1 Samuel chapter 21 to support what his disciples were doing. So he cites the story of David and his men eating the consecrated bread when they were hungry, but this was reserved only for the priests to eat, not for anyone. But what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here? Why is he saying the story about David? Jesus wants to point to them that God did not condemn David and his men. God did not strike David dead or the high priest dead for eating the showbread which was only for the priests. In other words, God cares about people and God cares about their needs. In contrast to God, the Pharisees used their authority to oppress the people under them. They forced these men to follow their traditions which was not even commanded by God. They couldn't care less about hunger or sickness or anything else that was a human need. All they cared about was keeping the law perfectly. And so they heaped burden after burden on the backs of the weary. Jesus goes on to explain to them the real purpose of the Sabbath. Verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was made to serve man. Man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath. It was for man's benefit. God intended to give his people rest from their labor when he created the Sabbath, when he asked them to follow the Sabbath. His intention was not to burden them anymore. So Jesus is showing that the Pharisees clearly did not understand the point of the law. They didn't understand the point of the Sabbath. In their pursuit to perfectly fulfill God's laws, they were blind to what God really wanted. They were seeking to earn God's blessing by works. And they forced others to do the same. They gave, this gave them their standing in the society, their positions of authority. They were confident in their self-righteousness. They were confident in their ability to keep the laws. And they were confident in their ability to interpret God's word. And they looked down on others who failed to do like them. The irony is that the Pharisees in their zeal to keep the Sabbath perfectly were breaking it. Instead of resting like God commanded them to, they were working twice as hard so they can rest legally. They were hypocrites. And Jesus restores the real meaning of Sabbath to it. But then Jesus reveals an amazing truth about himself. Verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now from a reading earlier in Exodus chapter 31 that Luke read for us, we can see that it is God who instituted the Sabbath. They were God's words to his people. But Jesus is coming on stage and he claims now that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that make him? He's very plainly saying nothing else but that he is God. He is saying that he 
has the superior authority over the Sabbath. Why? Because he wrote that law. This is amazing. Twice in this passage, Jesus has claimed that he is God. Also, when Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, there is another deeper meaning to it. What Jesus is saying that he is the Lord of rest. And he has come to offer rest. Rest in its truest sense. That is, rest from our works to earn God's favor. So in Exodus 31, verse 17, we can see that God gives the reason for Sabbath. It says, It will be, the Sabbath will be, a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rest. Do you see why, his, why God commanded his people to rest? God commanded his people to rest because God rested on the seventh day. But why did God rest on the seventh day? Was it because God was tired? No. He rested on the seventh day because he finished the work of creation that he was doing six days before that. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God rested because his work of creation was complete. There was no more work to be done. He looked at his creation on the seventh day and he was satisfied because it was perfect. It was good. So also, when God commands his people to rest, it was so that they would stop their work and remember God's work of perfection. That is what true rest means, my friends. True rest means to rest in God's finished work. In God's perfect work. The Sabbath rest in Exodus chapter 31 was meant to point to the time when Jesus would come and claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is the only one who gives rest. He gives rest from all our works that we do to please God. He gives rest from all our endless strivings to earn God's favor and to merit his acceptance. This is the rest that mankind is longing for. The Pharisees tried hard to keep the laws and to live perfect lives. But even they couldn't do it. Even they failed. That is what Jesus is showing here. All they could do was heap burden upon burden on the backs of the weary. But Jesus has come to offer rest to the weary. It is this rest that Jesus is talking about. It's the rest that we can never get on our own. Why? Because on our own strength, we can never meet God's requirements. Because he requires nothing but perfection. Friends, we must rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is what it means for us to rest. He achieved perfection with his obedience to God. In his life and in his death on the cross, God said he was satisfied with Jesus' work. He finished it. It was perfect. 
There remains no more work left to be done to please God. Now, not only is Jesus perfect, but today, today, if we put our faith and trust in this Lord and King, in this Jesus, then He promises that His perfection, His righteousness will be ours. It is not by works that we can get this righteousness. It is only, only by the sheer grace of God through faith in Jesus. This is the only way we can be perfect before God. Jesus says in another place, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is what Jesus is offering. Rest for our souls. Once we find this rest in Christ, then we don't have to prove anything anymore before God. But then we can start to live for Him. We can start to serve Him out of a deep satisfaction that comes from our identity in Christ. This is the only way we can do the works that God has commanded us to, the works that would please God. I have one application, my dear Christian friends. Do you struggle with the fear of failure? I want to encourage you. Look to the cross. Place your confidence in the finished work of Christ alone. And there you will find rest. Rest in Christ. Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he has come to offer rest. Lastly, Jesus saves lives. Now this is the last section of the controversies that we've been looking for for several weeks now. The conflict here is between again Jesus and the Pharisees but has heightened and is now finally reaching a climax. So let's read from Mark chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So, now they are all at the synagogue. Jesus is present. So also is a man with a shriveled hand. But so also are the Pharisees who are present in the synagogue. But did you notice that the Pharisees were present there on that day for a very different reason? Verse 2. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were there also to witness Jesus heal the man. 
But not because they cared for the man. But because they wanted to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. They wanted Jesus to heal the man so they can catch him. However, Jesus poses a rhetorical question. Verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? There is only one right answer to that question. It is to save life. Even the Pharisees had no problem agreeing with it on the Sabbath. But they remained silent. Can you imagine the shock of the people who must have been there in the synagogue watching their own religious leaders? Everyone would have expected the Pharisees to say, save life. But the Pharisees remained silent. But their answer to Jesus' question was quite clear. It was the loudest silence in that synagogue. Even their silence was screaming, kill, kill, kill. Jesus' response was a combination of anger and deep distress. But what exactly was Jesus looking at that made him so angry and so distressed? Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Said to the man, stretch out your hand. It was their hard hearts that made Jesus so angry and so distressed. Finally, the fruit, you see the fruit of their hard hearts. The Pharisees went out and plotted to kill Jesus, to destroy him. You know what's ironic in this passage? What's ironic is that the Pharisees were so concerned about not breaking the Sabbath, yet they would plot to kill Jesus on that very same day. They didn't care about Jesus breaking the Sabbath. Oh, they only cared about destroying him, destroying Jesus. And they did it with the Herodians. The Herodians were the Pharisees' worst enemies. On no other day would they even talk to each other. But on this occasion, they came together in full agreement to kill Jesus. Their rage against Jesus ultimately was what led him to the cross. And they killed him there. Their hearts were so bent on destroying him completely. They wanted him to suffer the fate of the worst criminal ever. Friends, the important question for us to ask hearing the story is, how did it get so serious that they would want to kill Jesus? It was not just one incident. It was a series of clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what Jesus was doing was, consistently he was exposing their sins. So if you remember, to a couple of weeks ago when Dave was preaching from Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 2 verse 7, the Pharisees were merely just thinking in their hearts, why does this fellow talk like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then, the next conflict, they ask what seems to be a very innocent question. Why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? 
Then they went from there to challenging Jesus about fasting, to accusing him to breaking the Sabbath law, to finally plotting to kill Jesus. Do you notice the progression? From subtle thoughts, to seemingly innocent questions, to openly challenging Jesus, to finally plotting to kill him. Jesus was exposing the sins of their hard hearts. You see, his interactions over the course of these conflicts that we've been looking have brought their sins to light. That's why the passage we are looking at today is the climax. Jesus confronted their rebellion strongly every time. They were so blind. They couldn't even see their own sin. So it was inevitable that they would seek to destroy Jesus. You know what was their sin? Their huge sin It was that in plotting to kill Jesus, they were plotting to kill God. What's worse, the Pharisees were the guardians of the law. They were seeking to deprive their people of God and all God's goodness that were meant for their lives. Jesus came to save lives. He answered his own question by healing the man. But the Pharisees did not want Jesus to save anymore. So Jesus was deeply distressed at their intentions. His anger against them represented God's anger against them. God's wrath against them because of their rebellion. Friends, it's easy for us to read this passage this morning and think, how cruel of the Pharisees to kill Jesus, right? But I don't know if you... If you think like this, do you know that we are the Pharisees in this passage? They represent us. We all have rejected God's rule in our lives. Every time we sin, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we are showing that we are rebels. Some of the doubts, the questions we have may seem perfectly innocent but are an affront to God, are opposing Him. We were born this way. We were born as rebels to God. We were born in our rebellion. Naturally, our bent is to do everything that is contrary to God's will. Our condition is just like the Pharisees. We have hard hearts. And as a consequence, we bear God's wrath upon us. For our rebellion. Jesus looks at us. In anger. And in deep distress. We may have never plotted to kill Jesus. And we would say that we've never even thought about such a thing. But so did the Pharisees. Till Jesus confronted them. Of their rebellion. And exposed their sin. How do we respond? When our sin is exposed. How do we respond when we see our sin? What is it that we do to protect it from coming to light? What if Jesus was really here today in this room and he was confronting our sin? What if he brought it all out? Today, how easy isn't it that we can deceive ourselves? It's easy for us to deceive ourselves. The Pharisees were deceived when they thought they were doing a godly thing by destroying Jesus for healing. 
Friends, we are all responsible for destroying this Christ, this Messiah, for destroying God. It was our rebellion that led Jesus to the cross. And we will face God's wrath for all of eternity for that. But, but the most amazing news for us sinners is that God in His love willed for Christ to die on the cross so that He will save His own enemies, so that He will save those who rebelled against Him, those who put Him on the cross in the first place. 1 John 4.10 This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He, his sacrifice was the, atone, was the atonement. He removed God's anger against us. This is why he died on the cross. He took the place of us who deserved God's judgment. He absorbed God's wrath fully upon himself and gave up his life to give life for those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him alone. Now He offers this salvation, this life with Him for all of eternity to anyone, anyone who would turn from their rebellion and would trust in Him and make Him the King of their lives, the Lord of their lives. Friends, if you haven't turned to Christ in faith, and this is something that you like to think about or know more about, then I would strongly encourage you to come talk to one of the elders after the service or me. Let me conclude. Jesus presents us with much to look forward to in this passage. He is the king who gave up his joy, who gave up his rest, who gave up his life, on the cross. For what? So that we can have all of that for eternity with God when Jesus comes back. That is what we long for. This is something to look forward to even as we enter this new year. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that Christ's work on the cross satisfied your wrath. Thank you, Lord, that he has also um, achieved the perfection and the righteousness that we could never get, never get by our own strength. So God, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to put our faith and trust in this King, in this Lord, so that we will know his joy, his rest, his life for all of eternity when we will be in your presence. We pray for that. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.